awareness came at a great expense. It came at the expense of many survivors who went out of their way to file complaints and petition the federal government. As a result, we're actually seeing some people in the public have increased knowledge. We all are parents, we all are sons and daughters. Many of us have college touch points in many ways, shape, or form. And the more engaged and aware the public is, I think the fact we push the wheel forward as colleges and universities get up to speed on, on doing this well. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. And this is Bob Ambrosia coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites. Before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Craig, sexual assault is, of course, a huge problem on college campuses and has been for a long time. Uh, in, in recent years, there have been various uh, efforts to address this issue through legislation and other in- initiatives, both uh, out of Washington and, and, and on other levels. In particular, there uh, has been uh, Vice President Biden, President Obama's uh, It's On Us campaign, uh, the Campus Accountability and Safety Act, uh, which is pending uh, uh, in Congress right now and, and other efforts. There has been a call to action towards implementing specific guidelines that colleges and universities need to adhere to when faced with allegations of sexual assault. But it's not all black and white, Bob. And how are colleges handling these allegations? Once accused, are those students receiving due process within administrative hearings? Are the alleged victims receiving the maximum protection from colleges? And is disciplinary action enforced against the perpetrator if they're proven guilty? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at the latest on sexual assault on college campuses, how colleges across the country are handling these allegations, and the issues of due process of accused students and victim protections, as well as the importance of educating students and faculty on sexual assault. Helping us do that today uh, are two guests. First of all, I'd like to welcome to the program attorney Laura Dunn, executive director of Serve Justice that's S-U-R-V, Justice, a national not-for-profit organization that increases the prospect of justice for survivors by holding both perpetrators and enablers of sexual violence accountable. Laura is a nationally recognized campus sexual violence survivor and activist. In 2007, she graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison with a bachelor's degree in legal studies and psychology, as well as a certificate in criminal justice, uh, and later earned her law degree at the University of Maryland, while a student at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, two men from Laura Dunn's crew team sexually assaulted her. Despite reporting this incident to campus officials and police, she was denied justice and eventually filed a Title IX complaint against the university. She successfully lobbied for passage of the 2013 Violence Against Women Act reauthorization advising to the White House Task Force to protect students against sexual assault and served as a primary student negotiator on the U.S. Department of Education's VAWA Rulemaking Committee. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Laura Dunn. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks. 
Bob, next up we have attorney Brett Sokolow. He is the president and CEO of the NCHERM Group, a law and consulting firm that works with schools and colleges on compliance, risk management, and prevention. The NCHERM Group represents more than 70 colleges and universities as legal counsel and has provided consultation to more than 3,000 colleges and university clients since it was founded in 2000. Brett is also the founder of NABITA, the National Behavioral Intervention Team Association. He serves as the executive director of ATIXA, the Association of Title IX Administrators, a 4,000-member organization. ATIXA has certified more than 2,500 campus Title IX coordinators and 5,000 campus Title IX investigators since 2011. The model policies and protocols developed by Sokolow's organizations are considered industry standards in higher education and are used by thousands of colleges and universities across the country. You can find out more about Brett at nchrm.org. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Brett. Thank you. I just realized I made you read and spell a whole lot of acronyms there, so forgive me for that. I'm really pleased to have a chance to share this forum with, uh, with Laura Dunn, and uh, looking forward to the discussion today. Well, we're all lawyers here, so you can't have too many acronyms in one show. It's always good to have those. Laura Dunn, I wonder if I could start just by asking you, I know we want to talk about a number of issues that are currently in the news, but I wonder if we could turn back to, to your case. And as I, as I noted in the introduction, you were denied justice in your case, and you eventually filed a Title IX complaint. How was your case handled? What happened in your case? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Um, so my case was handled more than a decade ago, and at that time there wasn't an explicit guidance yet under Title IX for schools to address sexual violence. Um, there was about sexual harassment and a form of sexual harassment and sexual violence, but back then there wasn't a lot of guidance for schools, and my university took over nine months uh, to investigate a complaint uh, while a criminal investigation was also happening. And at the campus level, um, ultimately waited until one accused student had graduated and the other one was about to graduate to let me know the decision. And at that time, there was no right to appeal. I found that they had only interviewed myself and one of the two men accused after nine months of possibilities of interviewing other witnesses. And so it really just wasn't an investigation as much as it was a delay tactic, which was not uncommon for schools to use at that time to avoid responsibility. Since my case, the Dear Colleague letter has come out, a Title IX guidance uh, really kind of directing schools to promptly resolve and equitably resolve complaints and do so ideally within 60 days rather than the nine months that the university took. So it was a very long case, and even the criminal case um, had some concerns. At that time, Wisconsin did not have alcohol listed as a possible intoxicant um, to mitigate the ability of someone to give consent. Uh, and therefore, I was told by the district attorney that while what happened to me was reprehensible, under the laws of Wisconsin, it was not illegal. So it was a really devastating time as an undergraduate student, but it obviously inspired me to learn the law and be able to advocate at that time for myself, but eventually now um, for hundreds of survivors across the country. Well, Brett, take us 10 years forward and give us what the standards are now. Well, the standards have become clear, which I think is uh, an improvement over where we were in the, the dark days. I think that there is a more common understanding now among students that they are protected by federal law, even if they don't know it's exactly Title IX, although many of them do. And 
the Department of Education, which enforces Title IX, has become, over the last five years, very prescriptive, laying out uh, in much better detail than we had. It's not perfect, but much better detail than we had their expectations for schools and colleges. And I think this has largely been met um, by campuses with some relief in the sense that they weren't sure exactly what to do before this time, and now they have greater clarity on that. I think some of them are also very overwhelmed by the amount of regulations that have been imposed, but I'm seeing pretty decent, good-faith efforts to come into alignment. It's slow, right? Higher ed moves very slowly, but uh, good-faith efforts to come into alignment with the federal expectations. There are also a lot of cases being litigated that constantly remind colleges when they get it wrong, and, you know, I, I think we're in a, a situation now where there are some bad actors, there, there are in any field, that continue to tarnish the name of, you know, how higher education responds to sexual violence and other types of gender violence. But we are making progress, at least from where I sit. And that's encouraging to me because as a, a change agent who works within higher education, if I wasn't seeing that, I'd have to find another way to make a difference. And as I understand it, that Dear Colleague letter uh, that Laura referred to uh, earlier requires educational institutions to adopt uh, standards, uh, uh, procedures rather, for uh, the uh, prompt and equitable resolution uh, of complaints. Laura, what does that mean? How much leeway do institutions have to define what those procedures should be? Absolutely. And just to take one step back, there is obviously guidance uh, coming from uh, the Office of Civil Rights within the Department of Education on Title IX, but there's also actually a federal statute um, that you referenced the 2013 Violence Against Women Act reauthorization that I worked on that amended the law called the Clery Act. And so we actually also have guidelines and regulations, not just about sexual assault, but also dating violence, domestic violence, and stalking coming out of there. So there's statutes and regulations under Clery and guidance under Title IX. And really the best schools know how to integrate both those laws. So Title IX has promptness and equity. It gives guidelines of saying 60 days is an ideal time frame to resolve complaints unless there's, of course, complicating matters which do arise and it has to be equitable. So rather than thinking of perhaps a scheme that's created for criminal justice that gives a lot of rights to defendants, this is more of an equal process. So victims also have rights, the accused also have rights, and they have to have equitable rights so that they're both participating in the process, both able to give information um, and interact and ultimately, ideally, get to the truth of the matter and have um, a fair resolution. Similar requirements exist under the Clery Act for prompt, fair, and impartial procedure. And it is very clear that that attaches immediately upon a complaint from a victim goes through the investigation and into the proceedings. And what's really nice about the Clery Act is it lays out some staples. Uh, it allows both parties, for example, to have an advisor of choice. So previously schools would not have to let in even lawyers into these proceedings. And now there's a real opportunity um, for students, uh, whether they're accused or the victim reporting, to bring someone in and have them uh, be there to provide support and counsel not necessarily to participate in the process. And so there's a lot of very specific rights that attach the moment of reporting and go through all the way to the conclusion. And we can definitely break that apart uh, into several segments. I know that Brett does a lot of trainings about each aspect of uh, the procedure. 
Well, Laura covered that pretty well. I'd just amplify with a, a couple of things, one of which is that the, uh, the Title IX Dear Colleague letter required colleges and universities to use the preponderance of evidence standard, right, the civil litigation standard in its campus resolution of all forms of sexual misconduct, which I think was a change for some colleges. Maybe about 80% were already using the preponderance standard, but really a symbolic change that is far more significant than the, the number of campuses that actually had to alter process because it represents a, a level playing field in, in a very, very prominent way. Uh, also, requirements that come under the VAWA Section 304 uh, that Laura referenced would include written notification of outcomes, which not all campuses were doing uh, to all the parties to a, an allegation so that they know uh, what has uh, occurred as a result, whether there's been an adequate remedy and resolution, and what their appeal rights are. As Laura mentioned that uh, those rights are equitable now. If an accused individual has the opportunity to uh, appeal a finding, so does the person who is making the allegation. And so the letter of outcome now is designed to vindicate those rights and make sure that the participants are, are well aware of, of what they are. And the VAWA protections are not just for students. They extend to employees in all of the covered behaviors that Laura referenced. You referenced the standard in that, and, and I know that that's been one of the bases of criticism, uh, at least from some corners of this policy. It was kind of a, a step back uh, from the clear and convincing standard that had been used. And I, there, I think there are a lot of people who are saying that the accused in these cases should have a, a stricter standard uh, of evidence being applied to them, because this is something that, uh, you know, these are serious charges, and there's charges that... Uh, stick with them the rest of their lives. What do you say to that? So first, you know, a lot of people get a little confused when we're talking about sexual violence. They automatically think, oh, we're talking about something criminal. We have to remember that Title IX is a civil right and it protects against sex discrimination. And one of the forms of sex discrimination is sexual harassment, and that also includes the severe cases of sexual violence. And so we're really actually talking about misconduct. Every single campus has a code of conduct. Certain behaviors are impermissible. A lot of people think of plagiarism, but truly a lot of crimes actually also correlate with misconduct. And so campuses, when they're adjudicating these matters, aren't determining a crime. It doesn't inherently follow students everywhere they go. Um, they are adjudicating, however, misconduct and very significant misconduct that may also have other civil and criminal implications. And uh, the standard, the preponderance of the evidence, is appropriate and used pretty much across the board for all misconduct. And as Brett very uh, wisely pointed out, this wasn't actually controversial. It was actually the norm. The norm was to use a preponderance of the evidence. And the very few schools that used clear and convincing, some of which also used beyond a reasonable doubt, were actually normally elite schools and a very small handful of them, which have now been found by and large to be out of compliance with Title IX as a result. Campuses are not criminal courts. They do not have investigators, you know, going to the bottom of the earth to get to the truth of the matter, but it is a misconduct hearing, and preponderance is an appropriate standard um, that has been supported. But, you know, Brett has more to add on that. Just a little bit, and that is that, you know, I, I think of Title IX and, and BAWA to an extent as sort of due process for victims, right? If due process rights have always protected the accused individual, then these federal statutes have helped to level the playing field and to give a commensurate level of rights to those who bring the allegations. So when you conceptualize the preponderance standard as part of the level playing field, anybody who would argue for a higher standard, of course, that's what most people do, I would ask them this question. 
why should it be harder for a woman to prove that she was victimized than it is for a man to assert that he didn't commit the victimization? And unless you can answer that question, because any standard, clear and convincing evidence, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, creates a gender inequity, then you have to go with preponderance under Title IX because it is an equitable standard. Now, of course, we all know that not all victims are female, not all uh, perpetrators are male, but when you look at the majority of the cases, more than the majority, they fall into that gender binary, and so you have to look at it through the lens of gender equity as you balance the standard. But you can make another argument as well, which I know your legal audience will appreciate, and that is that when the Department of Education evaluates whether a college has complied with Title IX, they do it based on the preponderance of the evidence standard. So you can't have a situation where a college would use a different standard on its internal processes than would the evaluating administrative agency with oversight responsibilities, or you're going to have a clash where simply by virtue of using a heightened standard, colleges fail to remedy that which OCR would require them to. So why is it that there's this administrative process even existing within colleges? Why isn't this, which is in standard society, would just be handed over to a criminal investigator? Why are the colleges even involved with this? Why doesn't it just turn itself over to a uh, criminal prosecutor and let it go at that? Laura, what's the rationale behind all of this regulation and all of these acts? Yeah, I think a lot of people cite that argument that you just repeated, and unfortunately it's actually not grounded in fact. So... Again, there are codes of misconduct on campus, and those codes of misconduct include physical assault, preventing other forms of violence, hate crimes. Uh, campuses already have actually very extensive codes of conduct. And so, for example, if you commit a drug offense, the school doesn't just turn you over to the police and say, we're not going to do anything. The campus actually has very much a right to choose who they allow in and who they decide should no longer be a student. And something that may also be criminal also has implications as misconduct. So just as a criminal offense for drugs, even if it's not proved beyond a uh, reasonable doubt, if the school believes there's a preponderance of the evidence, they can actually still take action against that student, put them on probation, give them a suspension, require that they go to counseling. There's a variety of mechanisms, and that's actually the norm. Schools have always done this with a variety of crime. There's nothing unusual or distinct about also doing it for sexual violence. It has been the history, though, that schools have avoided that responsibility, and again, that's why the Dear Colleague letter and other efforts by the federal government have really mattered to say, no, this is just like any other crime. There's nothing unique or different here. Just like you have misconduct hearings for other issues and violations, you so will have it for sexual misconduct. If I could weigh in briefly on the same question, I, I hear a lot of criticism of colleges and universities that goes along the lines of what you said. You know, why don't victims just take this to the police, why don't campuses report it and, and deal with it uh, as a crime that it is? And, and while there's a lot of criticism of the way colleges and universities resolve sex offenses, I actually think there's one system that's worse, and it's called the criminal justice system. And so for me, any argument that says, well, we shouldn't handle this on a campus, victims should just take this downtown, that's really confining all but you know, 2% of them to, to no resolution whatsoever. And so if we were actually pointing to a viable alternative, I would say that argument would be one that we should contemplate, but it's not. And, and colleges and universities take on this responsibility, not because they, they see a deficiency in the criminal process. In fact, colleges don't address crimes at all. I want to be very explicit about this because I think it's misunderstood. 
Colleges never have addressed rape, don't address rape, and never will. I think it's a very important thing to understand. Colleges address sex discrimination in physical form. They don't address rape. That's a crime. As Laura said, it can only be addressed by criminal authorities. Colleges have no authority to address criminal behavior. They address code violations, as she said, that may have equivalents. And in this case, there is a crime that's an equivalent, right? The crime of rape or sexual assault is in some ways equivalent to sex discrimination in physical form. But to argue that colleges shouldn't handle sex discrimination when it's in physical form leads to another problematic argument is why should they handle all other forms of sex discrimination covered under state and federal law except for that? And so this is a, a continuum of behaviors. And colleges are required under federal standards to address the continuum. Whether it parallels a crime in some ways or not, I would actually argue that what colleges are policing these days on their campus really doesn't parallel crimes in many ways. The campus definition, the expectations for what they call affirmative consent, they're so much broader than what state police as, uh, as criminal conduct. But we're, we're really looking at a, a community standard and expectations for students that are, in fact, I think, on them tighter than they would be if those students were operating in the community in which they live. Well, we need to take a quick break before we move on to our next segment, and we'll hear a short message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, uh, and joining Craig Williams and I today are Attorney Laura Dunn, Executive Director of Serve Justice, and Attorney Brett Sokolow, Founder, President, and CEO of the NCHERM Group, LLC. We've been discussing a variety of issues surrounding sexual assault on campus. And Brett, I wanted to follow up uh, with something you were just discussing uh, in terms of, we've been talking kind of the the difference between uh, enforcing codes of conduct on campuses and and sexual assault uh, prosecuted as a criminal matter. But there has been a a lot of criticism uh, from a, a number of corners of uh, the lack of due process uh, in these procedures. Uh, we, we saw, uh, was it last year, I think it was, uh, that a, a number of Harvard Law School professors came out with a, a statement criticizing their school's uh, handling of these kinds of cases, uh, of sexual uh, harassment and sexual assault cases. Uh, and then in particular, there was the ruling from uh, California, uh, the San Diego County uh, Superior Court, 
just this summer addressing a case in which a, a student who uh, had been uh, accused of sexual assault at the university at UC San Diego, finding that that, that student had, had been denied due process and, and basically fair treatment in, in the handling of that case. So where does due process come into this? Uh, what are the institution's responsibilities to ensure due process to the uh, students who are accused in these cases? Well, you know, I think you started the conversation or the question around, you know, the criticism of colleges that they're not providing sufficient due process. I think there are two camps uh, on that particular question. There's a camp that wants colleges and universities to enforce the legal obligations of due process that fall upon them, and public universities are required to provide due process. It's lowercase d, lowercase p. It's not the same due process that you would see in a criminal proceeding. But public universities are required, and private colleges, the majority of colleges in this country, are actually required to be fundamentally fair, but due process as a constitutional right doesn't attach to a non-state entity, a non-public entity. And so there's this one camp that wants campuses to fulfill the obligations they have legally. There's another camp, and there's the local ones, who want to extend and expand due process protections from what they currently are as legal requirements on college campuses. So you've got to distinguish those two camps, because the people speaking loudest for due process protections are those who want to expand them and to really overturn 50 years of jurisprudence in this country that holds procedural protections on college campuses to a fairly minimal standard. They want college processes to look more like courts. They want full rights to legal representation. They want a presumption of innocence and Fourth Amendment exclusionary rule, and, and all of those things really don't apply on even public college campuses to a, a very great extent. Due process for most public colleges and universities requires essential fairness notice uh, in advance and uh, an opportunity to adequately defend and respond to the allegations. And from there, it really varies by state and, and federal circuit to some extent how much more process you provide to be essentially fair. In the UC San Diego case that you referenced, for example, there was a comprehensive report that was completed by the investigators in advance of the hearing that occurred on that campus. And although the report was completed and was available, it wasn't shared with the accused student prior to the hearing. He had really no idea of what was in it and no ability then to prepare in advance to defend himself throughout the hearing process. So to me, that's not an expansion of due process rights when the judge says that was unfair. That's just saying he didn't need basic due process, which is giving that full and fair opportunity to defend the allegations. You've got to change under Title IX that report between the parties. It has to be equitable, and every party should have the opportunity to, to prepare. So I'm not really in the camp uh, in any way of expanding the due process protections that uh, need to be applied in the college environment. I, I'm a fan of enforcing the rules that are on the books and getting colleges to the point where they are providing the appropriate level of, of process that's required by their own uh, internal rules uh, and by law. And you should know parenthetically that that UC decision has been appealed by the UC system. Uh, so we don't have a final decision on that one yet. And I think it was kind of a first of its kind, right? There, there haven't been other decisions uh, reaching similar conclusions uh, from courts that I'm aware of, have there? 
Sure, that was a minor decision. There have been 50 years of due process cases that have focused in on all forms of, of student misconduct, including sexual misconduct. Before that, there was John Doe versus the University of the South, which is a far more significant case in federal court. No, the California case was a, a minor magistrate decision in, uh, in, a, in a state court in, in California that's currently on appeal and actually follows in a, line of, a long line of due process cases. Now, what's interesting now in terms of the development of the law is that a lot of these young men who are suing their campuses are not alleging due process. They're starting to allege negligence claims. And more than that, they're starting to allege Title IX violations. That they have rights under Title IX that have been violated by the way the school has applied their standards in a way that was inequitable on the basis of gender or discriminatory. And there are a lot of lawyers who are eager to see whether Title IX can be extended to that level of protection. I'd say the courts so far are, are not resoundingly in support, but some of these cases are getting further than maybe we would have guessed they would a couple of years ago when they started to be filed. Laura, let's turn and take a look at the issue of uh, public knowledge and public information about this. The consent issues and a lot of the things that we've been discussing are fairly well known on college campuses and among college students, but I think not so well in the general population. What's happening in that regard so that uh, there's more support for these kind of reforms in the larger population of the country? Well, awareness has definitely increased on campus. Um, let's remember that that's largely due actually to student activism. We've had students being rallying at their campuses, demanding changes in policies. Uh, several students have filed Title IX complaints against the university and through student activism have actually uh, convinced the White House to list the public lists of Title IX investigations. So awareness came at a, a great uh, expense. It came at the expense of many survivors who went out of their way to file complaints and petition the federal government for this knowledge. And as a result, we're actually seeing some people in the public have increased knowledge because survivors have been very wise in actually getting the media to cover these and relay the stories. And unlike ever before, survivors are actually using their faces and names. Um, in the past, you know, these are cases that affected Jane Doe, someone behind a shroud that no one could name. And now we're seeing faces and voices. And so it really has gone a long way to creating public awareness. I think parents are being thoughtful now about which campus are they choosing, which one is the right one. And there's actually a great opportunity to be educating parents about what to look for and what to ask for. A lot of people make the assumption that if a school has had a Title IX complaint filed against them that they're not uh, a school to go to. But to be honest, in my work, the schools that have already gone through the complaint process come out better for it because the U.S. Department of Education routinely does voluntary resolution agreements, bringing schools up to speed, requiring them to put certain programs in place to have certain hirings and to make certain fixes to their policies and procedures. And a lot of schools have taken that to heart. So you know, I think there is an opportunity for parents to use Title IX and where those complaints are happening to actually figure out which colleges are best. The colleges that have never had a complaint, it's unknown. It's unknown whether no one has filed or if there is not an issue there. And I would say that in addition to awareness kind of spreading into the general population, I think awareness is finally starting to increase within the legal community. I hate to say it, but there's so many attorneys I meet on a regular basis who still don't know about Title IX, who still don't know about the Clery Act, um, the interplay of FERPA, a privacy right with a lot of this information. And there's actually a great and growing opportunity and market for 
um, individuals involved in the legal communities to start advocating directly on campus, whether you're going in and ensuring due process for the accused or actually now because of the equal rights, going in and supporting the survivor and making sure that their rights are, in fact, upheld in those hearings. The uh, the Campus Accountability and Safety Act is a bill pending in U.S. Congress that would change, as I understand it, how universities investigate allegations of sexual assault. What would that bill do, and is it good policy, in your opinion, Laura? You know, the bill does several things, uh, one of which uh, served justice initially was in large support of, as are many student activists, and that is to create finding power. So while there's been hundreds of schools under investigation at this point, not even one school has lost federal funding as a result, and that is the only enforcement mechanism under Title IX. The alternative is the voluntary resolution agreements, which have been largely relied upon, and many survivors feel that this is inappropriate. There are a few schools, a very few, that are repeat offenders that have multiple Title IX complaints against them, and that there is a large push to actually see penalties. So CASA, the Campus Accountability and Safety Act, does set a fine at 1% of the school's budget, uh, which is very large and meant to be so because of this ongoing issue on campus. The Clery Act has always had fines, and um, Penn State, for example, is under a Clery Act investigation and is likely facing a very large penalty. As a result, uh, Virginia Tech resulted in a penalty under the Clery Act. Yale has been fined under the Clery Act for hiding sexual assaults. So there are some enforcement mechanisms there, but people are really asking for it under Title IX. There is a portion of CASA that I'm, I'm, uh, my organization has not supported and, if anything, has spoken out against, and that is this requirement for schools to provide advisors, confidential advisors to survivors. The law, unfortunately, doesn't create confidentiality. And so it's an empty promise, and, um, you know, I believe Brett can talk about this further, but schools have their own liability in these cases. To say that the school can also serve as an advisor um, of a victim who has a separate interest that may, in fact, come into conflict with the interest of the institution um, is really inappropriate and, quite frankly, setting up survivors um, to be misled. And there is, unfortunately, a very long history of universities not doing right by survivors and, in fact, trying to otherwise sweep it under the rug. So... CASA has some aspects that I think are worthy, but there's also a very dangerous aspect, I think, in the confidential advisor portion. Well, it it looks like we just about reached the end of our program. We'd like to invite our guests, Laura Dunn and Brett Sokolow, to share their final thoughts. So, Brett, let's start with you. And also, at the same time, please include your contact information should our listeners want to reach out to you. Sure. Well, you can find me through our website, which is www.atixa.org the home for the Association of Title IX Administrators, a 4,000-strong group of administrators who are working daily and uh, diligently to improve the safety of campuses and compliance with the Title IX and the Violence Against Women Act. Uh, I guess in closing, I would simply encourage your listeners to become engaged in this topic and this process. We all are parents. We all are sons and daughters. Many of us have uh, college touch points in, in many ways, shape, or form. And the more engaged and aware the public is, I think the faster we push the wheel forward as colleges and universities get up to speed on, on doing this well. And I'm especially appreciative to groups like Serve Justice, Laura's organization, um, for the great catalytic role that they have provided and do provide um, to help advance the cause of gender equity on college campuses. So thanks for having me on. Well, thank you. And Laura? 
Yeah, so if you want to get a hold of me or anyone at Serve Justice, that is spelled S-U-R-V for survivors, servejustice.org is our website, and there's an inquiry page there, or you can tweet us at Serve Justice or find us on Facebook. I think in closing, my final thought is just to really point out to the legal community especially that there are many ways to get involved in this issue. A lot of people are focused on due process, the conversations that are happening there. They are very worthy discussions, um, and there's, of course, uh, what Brett has been doing, working with schools, advising on that end, uh, making sure that there is compliance, and also addressing potential liability. But the third aspect that I think is often forgotten is this is really part of the example of victims' rights. Uh, there are rights for individuals just as if they were plaintiffs in civil suits, and it is an aspect that is unfortunately often lost. A lot of these survivors really do need legal counsel, and there's a great opportunity for pro bono services to ensure that there is accommodations on campus, which is also part of Title IX we didn't get to touch on, make sure they still have access to their education, accommodations with classes and safety concerns, but also, of course, helping them through that process uh, because there are, unfortunately, a lot of retaliation against survivors, whether for reporting or even if a process has gone all the way through, there are starting to be lawsuits brought against victims for their reports. So it's a really rich area of law, and I'm excited that it's being covered and hope attorneys will get involved. Great. Well, thank you very much for being on the program. Thank you for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.